So for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give Ryan a little bit of grace on this one because I'm going to explain then. For those of you who don't know, our church was planted by Cornerstone a couple years ago, a big church over in Ames, and we need to give Ryan extra grace because he was at Cornerstone for how many years, Ryan? 20 more? Yeah, so he, it's a little ingrained, you know, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, so. <laughs> Love you, Ryan. So. Good morning, and thank you all for being with us. I love being here with you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joey Weber, and I'm the associate pastor here. And I thought I would spend a little bit of time at the beginning just kind of sharing who I am, because some of you know me, some of you haven't gotten to know me very well yet, and so just wanting to like share a little bit about myself, um, more just about the position of associate pastor. Because a lot of times when I tell people that I'm an associate pastor, they will say, well, what exactly does that mean? We're still trying to figure it out. Um, a lot of, no matter what church you go to, you will often find an associate pastor role in a church. And the only thing that's consistent about that role is the inconsistency of it. It can be anything. It's kind of just a catch-all pastor. So for us, it means a lot of different things. Um, Matt and I attempt to co-lead in many areas of the church, just trying to, we, we talk about a lot of the issues and work together to try and solve issues and plan things and, and just really working together. Um, our gifts and talents really complement each other often. And so I'm just blessed to have Matt in those times to just sharpen each other and work towards um, spreading the gospel in this community. Um, for us personally here, um, some days the role of associate pastor means preaching. I'm, I tend to preach about a third of the time. And I'm blessed to be able to do that. I love being able to be here and preaching. Uh, other days, it means delivering $300 in snacks to the schools from the, the generous gifts that you guys are giving to the church that we're able to put into missions. We can go buy $300 in snacks and go take them to the schools and watch the teachers cry tears of joy. So that's a fun part of my job. I also will someday spend time organizing and planning fun church events, whether it's pool parties or trunk or treat or whatever it is. That's just kind of something God has gifted me with of organizational and administrative abilities. Other days, it means hunting wasps and jumping from one roof to the next, just trying to find the nest and searching all over the roofs up here. Um, I guess that's what they meant when they said, and other duties as assigned by the lead pastor. I'm just kidding. I actually just wanted to do that. I offered. So... So that's just a little bit about me. Um, today, we are continuing our series on Entrusted, Living a Life of Stewardship. And so last week, Matt did a really great job of kicking off that series for us and just casting the overall vision for what it means to be a good steward. Stewardship is the management of another person's property, finances, or household affairs. Those of us who are followers of Jesus need and must understand that everything we have is from God. Everything. From the breath in our lungs to the, the stuff around us, everything is from God. And so we've looked at the, the overall idea of a life of stewardship. And now the next three weeks, we will break down stewardship into subcategories. And so this week, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and trying to get an understanding of what it means to be a good steward of our possessions. And next week, we'll look at money, and the following week, we will look at time. Today, we want to discuss the stuff 
that we surround ourselves with. So if you haven't already, you can head over to Luke chapter 12. While you're heading over there, I thought it would be really helpful for us to get an understanding of what the culture tells us about possessions, how we are to treat possessions. The, the culture is so loud and screaming at us most of the time. I thought it would be helpful to kind of start there and just see what they have. So I have a, a bit of, uh, we'll call it poetry, that I'm going to read for you that I feel truly encapsulates what the culture says about how to view possessions. So this says, I like dollars, I like diamonds, I like stunting, I like shining. I like million dollar deals, where's my pen, I'm signing. I like those Balenciagos, the ones that look like socks. I like going to the jeweler, I put rocks all in my watch. I like texts from my exes when they want a second chance. I like proving people wrong. I do what they say I can't. That's just one. But there's also many views like that. So I found another one. And it says, yeah, breakfast at Tiffany's and bottles of bubbles. Girls with tattoos who like getting in trouble. Lashes and diamonds, ATM machines. Buy myself all of my favorite things. My wrist stop watching, my neck is flossing, make big deposits, my gloss is popping. You like my hair? Gee, thanks, just bought it. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. For those of you who are sitting there kind of wondering why there's a handful of individuals giggling, um, those are popular songs on the radio right now from a couple of Really incredible artists, Cardi B and Ariana Grande, real great theologians of our day. Um, not so much. But we can giggle about that, and we can listen to those lyrics and, and, and just giggle, or just sing along mindlessly, not even think about what we're saying. But I use them because I think it's important to know what the culture is constantly telling us about how to treat possessions. From clothing to jewelry to people, it's all about collecting as much stuff in this life as we can get our hands on. But this is not a new idea. Many of you can sit here and, and probably think back to your teenage years. And every generation has had similar ideologies, similar things that they tell us. The culture has constantly said, this is how we treat it. So maybe you're sitting there like, yeah, that sounds a lot like other songs when I was young. Yeah, because it's the same trend in culture. The idea of hoarding up as much stuff as we can get on earth has been around since original sin. And like Matt said last week, Jesus has a lot to say about how to steward everything we have been given. And so we're going to dive into what Jesus has to say about possessions. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required for you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich towards God. So we start off our passage right away. And someone comes up to Jesus and he's concerned about inheritance. And for some of us, we may start to struggle with this idea. Because I said this is about possession. And, and now we're talking about inheritance. And for a lot of, for some people, you may instantly start to think of money when it comes to inheritance. It's It's life insurance policies and it's savings accounts and retirement funds. That's what inheritance looks like for a lot of us. But that's not what an inheritance was in first century Israel. An inheritance was land and livestock and harvest and buildings. It was all possessions. This will help us to differentiate between possessions this week and money next week. I do love Jesus' first words to this man who's asked the question. He says, who makes me a judge or arbitrator over this, over you? At this point, I kind of want to tell Jesus, "Um, God, God made you the judge. That's how this works, Jesus. Don't you know? But he's saying, no, not in this situation. This, this, This inheritance issue, this is not my responsibility. This is not why I'm here on earth. To sit on a throne and rule over and judge inheritance issues. That is not my job as the son of God. This will also help us to get a perspective on this passage. It can be very easy for us to read this passage or many others like it and look to the left and the right. We can look around at the people around us and say, well, I know, I know Shane and I know Matt and I know, I know they don't do a very good job of being a good steward of their possessions. I'm going to take this passage and I'm going to teach them that they need to do better. It's really easy for us to see the speck in our brother's eyes and fail to see the log in our own. Everything we talk about over the next three weeks is not intended for us to use as fuel to go to our greedy and selfish friend and teach him a lesson. That's not the purpose of this series. This series is intended for each one of us to take the long, hard look in the mirror at our lives, at ourselves, and just pray and just ask God, like, what what does it look like for me to be a good steward? How can I live out these passages more and more in my life? How can I be more like Jesus in the area of stewardship? We need to let God's word convict our friends and family and ourselves, not our words. So Jesus keeps going along, and before he gets to his story, he gives him this warning, and he says, be on guard against covetousness. The passage that I read uses that word covetousness, and depending on what translation you're reading, many of yours probably says the same word, and and that really confused me at first, especially then when we jump into the parable and the story, it really confused me. To me, coveting is always about looking to the left and the right, looking at what other people have and desiring the possessions of others. Like, I really want what my friend over here has. I really want that stuff. That's what coveting 
was to me. And, and the man at the beginning, the one who asked the question, he is doing that. He's desiring the inheritance from his brother. But then the parable that Jesus tells, it's talking about a man that has everything he could want and more. He has an abundance. So how could he possibly be coveting? So I started researching and reading other translations, and I found out that every other translation uses the word greed in this verse. That made sense to me. Because I can have everything I want and still be greedy. I can get a brand new pair of shoes this week and still want another pair next week. I can be greedy. I understand the idea of greed. Greed is a heart issue. Wanting the new iPhone and being willing to do anything I can to get a hold of it and even maybe stealing it from somebody, that is a sin, but it's an overflow of the heart issue of greed. And so we need to understand what it means to be greedy and coveting. Greed is defined as intense and selfish desire for something. But the problem is is that I was defining covetousness too narrowly. To covet is defined as a yearning to possess, to have something. It is to be consumed with the desire for that item. Simply put, coveting is desiring stuff too much or desiring too much stuff. It's replacing our delight in God with a joy in stuff. Coveting can be in so many areas of our life. Cars, home, technology, fame, influence, children, spouses. We can look around and we can start to covet in every area of our life. Now, those are all good things. Children and spouses and cars, and those can be good things. But when we covet them, we make them into a God thing. We begin to worship the creation more than the creator. And that's never good. Jesus' words at the end of 15 really struck me. And I think I want to challenge myself. I want to challenge you all too. These words of Jesus, they need to be memorized. They need to be repeated daily. They need to be soaked into our minds. One's life does not consist of the abundance of your possession. Your life is not defined by how much stuff you have. And we have to memorize and we have to just let that soak in over and over again because just like the songs I read at the beginning, and that's not it. The television shows that we watch and the movies that we watch and the friends that we surround ourselves, everything is screaming. You need more stuff. You need more stuff. Collect more stuff. You need the new this. You need the new that. We have to let this verse soak into our minds. One's life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. Remember that when the world starts screaming at you. And so Jesus says that, and then he tells this story, this parable of the rich farmer. And again, depending on what Bible you're reading out of, you may have the, the heading at the top of the story, and it says the parable of the rich fool. Because that's really what he is. And we can see right away in verses 16 and 17, the problem that our rich fool has. He has too much stuff, right? God has blessed him with a harvest that is more than he has storage for. He just 
has tons and tons of harvest. I don't know what kind of yields he was putting out, you know, maybe 220, maybe even like 250. I don't know, but it was something incredible. He couldn't even harvest all of it. He didn't have enough place to store it all. It was out of control for him. It must have been impressive. So he develops a plan, right? I have an idea. And we can see his plan in, in, in verses 18 and 19. The man's solution to his problem. He will tear down all of his barns and build bigger barns so that he can live off the harvest for the rest of his life. This is where any of you who are farmers, any logical farmer would say, this is just ridiculous, right? Like this doesn't even make sense. He has all this harvest. He's obviously going to be busy with a harvest that is more than he's ever dealt with before. He doesn't have time to be tearing down barns and rebuilding barns. Plus, why wouldn't he just build more? What is the purpose of tearing down and building more? Was there something wrong with the old ones? It doesn't say we have to remember, this is the parable of the rich fool, not the visionary farmer, right? He's not, he isn't clearly thinking about all the potential consequences. This man was only thinking about his own comforts. And we can see that in verse 19. Verses 18 and 19, actually, you can see the repeated words, my and I. Four times the farmer says, my And six times he says, I. This shows us how deeply ingrained with selfishness he is. This man is not concerned with how to use his wealth wisely. He is not trying to serve God or help others. He isn't even concerned with having a richer, fuller life. He is only concerned with self-indulgence. This idea of self-indulgence made me immediately think of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a book written by King Solomon towards the end of his life. And I have the passage behind us, but it just really mirrors what we have to say or what this is saying in Luke 12. Solomon says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil." And this was my reward for my toil. So here's Solomon just talking about all of this stuff he's got, right? I see it. I want it. I like it. I got it. Really, is really what Solomon's saying here. Everything he wanted, he got it. But then he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing gained under the sun. Solomon was believed to be one of the richest men in the entire world. He lived in lavish temples and had everything he could desire. That's what he says in these verses. Food, women, houses, livestock, fields, and fame. 
all of it he had. And yet at the end of his life, he says, it's all vanity and like striving after the wind. Do you get that word picture? That poetry that he uses? It's like striving after the wind. All of this that he's done, it's just like striving after the wind. He's just grasping. It's meaningless. It's worthless. It's, it's but a vapor. There's nothing for him to grasp onto. It's not that he acquired all this. It's meaningless. I, I pray that that comes across in this message. It's not that he had acquired all of this stuff. The possessions are okay. It was his heart behind it that was the problem. Just like the rich fool in the parable, Solomon did all of this for his own self-indulgence. What are our thoughts when we have excess Right? When we get some extra back on our tax returns, some unexpected that we didn't know, or, or we go to buy a new home, and we're like, ah, I've got to have this much house, this, much, this many bathrooms and bedrooms. I've I got to have more. You know, what, what is our thoughts? Maybe it's like this in the story, where when you have an unexpectedly large harvest like this man in the story. What are your thoughts when your neighbor goes and buys a new car? Do you instantly see that and think, well, I need to go buy a new one now because I don't want to have the oldest car in the neighborhood. Even though mine is perfectly fine, I can't be the one with the oldest car. It's all about keeping up with the Joneses, right? We all, we have to be better. That's the American dream. We just have to have everything that everyone else has. I remember a time when Andrea and I were car shopping. And while we were waiting for whatever, paperwork or something, we heard uh, a couple having a bit of a disagreement. See, they were at the car shop uh, getting their brand new car service. It was like a two-month-old car. And while they were there, the wife realized that the car that they owned, that they had just bought, was going to be releasing a new body style that year. She had only had this car for a few months. So basically, you know, it's like, I'm sure you understand what I'm saying, but just to make sure, it's like she had a 2019 Camaro, and she realized in just a couple of months, the 2020 was coming out, and it was going to look exactly opposite, completely different than what hers was. She was rather upset. I remember her loudly screaming at her husband in the dealership. How could you disrespect me this way? How, why didn't you do better research? How could you have not known that they were going to come out with a new body style? This is your fault. How could you do this? Now everyone will know that my car is not new. How could you disrespect me like that? And Trey and I are just like, oh, wow. I just... I don't even know how to help this situation right now. Now, as this story sounds awful to most of us, hopefully all of us, but it's, it's the reality of this culture around us. And, and I'll tell you another story that's a little bit more humbling for me. Um, we have gone to Poland a, a few times and gone on mission trips there. And the couple that we work with there are some of the hardest working Christians I have ever met. Leading conferences in this country and traveling to another country to lead an English camp and going to the other side of the country to teach in a college, discipling men and women every single night. They're constantly going, running 100 miles an hour after Jesus and bringing everyone along that they can. 
and they came to America to visit churches that were supporting them. And while they were here, they visited our church, and they wanted to have dinner with Andrea and I since we had been with them a few times. The interesting part of the story and the humbling part of the story was right before they came, I had been complaining about our house. It's just, it's so old and there's little things that are going wrong in it. And we only have two bathrooms. And the other day I had to wait for the bathroom because both the boys were in there taking forever. We need a new house. We need three bathrooms at least because I don't want to ever have to wait to get in there. Like I'm just complaining nonstop. It's not good enough. It's not new enough. It's not our, our house. Just complaining nonstop about our house. And then they came to visit. And they just kept walking around our house, asking over and over again how many people lived in our home. You have a four-bedroom house for four people? You have an entire extra room just in case? And they just were in awe by that. And I'll never forget while we ate lunch, sitting in our dining room, the wife looks at Andrea and she goes, you have an entire room that you just eat in? Well, no, we play piano in it once in a while, too. <sighs> See, they, they have this mentality. They, they have five people living in a one-bedroom apartment. Their desire is to live in the smallest, cheapest place possible because all we're doing there is sleeping. Because there's work to be done. The harvest is plentiful. I need to spend as least amount of money as possible so that I can run after Jesus. And I know some of that is cultural differences. I understand. I've gone to enough countries. I understand that American culture is vastly different than others. But it did make us start to um, question some of our excess. My, my need to have a three-bedroom house that I never have to wait is ridiculous. <laughs> it's not bad to have a nice home and nice cars. But the farmer in this story goes well beyond that. The moral of this parable is that covetousness chains our hearts to things that are passing away. Because even a newer home, a newer bedroom, in years it's going to start falling apart and it's it's never going to be enough. We really only have two choices about the possessions that we have in this world. We either lie up treasures for ourselves, or we're rich towards God. Being rich towards God does not mean that we have to give, all, give away all of our possessions. That we, it doesn't mean that we have to live poor and live in poverty just to be honoring to God. It may mean that we give something away from time to time, but not always. It truly just means using all of the stuff that we have for God's glory. And so in verse 21, we can see the, the other solution, the other idea of what we could do with excess. We give it away. We be generous with whatever God has given us. We sat in our elder meeting on Monday morning talking about stories of people being generous and being giving with what they have. And Ryan, our, one of our elders, told us the story about this man that he had heard of back when he was in high school. This heavy machine operator who every single year would pay for college for a kid in his town. Just, just wanted to... No, not because of athletics, not because of um, academics, nothing. There was no essays. It was just he would find out one person who really needed college and would give it to them. 
Now, this, you're like, well, that's kind of like money again, too. Well, to me, it's not, because an education is one of the greatest possessions you can give people. Now, some of us may sit there, too, and say, like, well, that sounds great. I'd love to be able to do that, but I'm never going to be able to get there. Like, that's just not something I'm going to be able to do. So what's something simple? Like, we've got something huge, and maybe there's even bigger things out there. What's something simple? So, again, we were talking, and I found this video that I just thought was wonderful and we needed to share here. So we have a video of the candy. Isn't that awesome? I just love that. These are just a couple of examples of being able to give away what God has given us. We need to start looking at all of the possessions that we have as ministry opportunities. From giving rides to people who may not have a car to if you so feel called, maybe letting people live with you for a time while they're trying to get back on their feet. Or, or even just using our home to be hospitable and giving what God has given us. Everything we have is a gift from God. This rich farmer, this rich fool, he could have looked around and probably seen poverty as far as the eye could see. He could have given out of the abundance of what he had to help those who were hurting. But we have to ask, what is the benefit of that, right? There's, there's a benefit in this world of keeping and gathering and storing up. There's clearly a benefit of that. What's the benefit of being generous? Of being a good steward. We see in this video, clearly there's a benefit to being generous. You know, anyone who's ever given anything or let even someone borrow something, that thankfulness that the person shows them, that warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing you've done something good, that's great. And that's something that's awesome, you know. But it's not always enough. You don't have to be a Christian to do nice things. This world is filled with generous and giving people who have no desire to follow Jesus. I have a friend who is one of the most generous people I know, and he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. But we can see for Christians there's something more. There's something greater than that warm, fuzzy feeling. We can see that if we drop down to verse 33 of this chapter 12 of Luke. 
Verse 33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is not teaching us that we need to sell everything and live in poverty in order to follow him. He never once teaches his believers that they're not to have possessions. But what he is teaching, he's emphasizing that followers of Jesus must not be dominated by their possessions. Trust in stuff prevents trust in God. What Jesus is truly saying is that real riches are a treasure. They are treasure that do not fail. They are found in purses that do not grow old. These types of riches are secure from robbery and from moths destroying. Your clothes will wear out. Your technology will become outdated. There may be another body style of your car released in four months after you buy it. Our possessions will always let us down if we treasure them more than God. True, posse- true riches are found in using what God has given us, our time, our talent, and our treasures, and using them for his glory. Coveting is choosing earthly trinkets above eternal treasure. If you are storing up possessions, this verse is very pointed. If you are storing up possessions, you are the fool. That's what it says in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What does it even mean to be rich towards God? It's the opposite of laying up earthly treasures for yourself. Being rich towards God is the opposite of treating our lives as if they were meant to be meant for possessions and not for God. Being rich towards God is the opposite of acting as if our life consists in the abundance of possessions and not the abundance of knowing God. Being rich towards God is a heart being drawn towards God as our riches. Rich towards God means moving toward God. Rich towards God means counting God greater than any riches in this world. Rich towards God means using earthly riches to show how much we value God. And that's what this rich farmer failed to do. And as a result of his choices, God says, you didn't realize it, but you're going to lose your life tonight. And all this stuff you've gathered, who's it going to be? This is why possessions can be so hazardous for us. They lure us out of a love for God. They lure us away from treasuring God. Again, I say it over and over again because I want to make sure we're hearing it. The issue is not that the man's fields prospered. It's not that he had an abundance. The issue is that God ceased to be his treasure. If God had been his treasure, he would have done things much differently. Instead of saying, soul, you have ample goods, eat, drink, relax, and be merry. Maybe he would have said, God, this is all yours. You have made my fields prosper. Show me how to express my riches, that you are my treasure, and that this stuff is not. I have enough. I don't need bigger barns. I don't need to store all this stuff. I don't need to eat, drink, and be merry. Because Jesus teaches me it's more blessed to give than to receive. We need to be using everything we have for the glory of God. We need to start thinking this way. It's okay to have a nice house or a new car if God has blessed you in that way. 
But the true test of overcoming covetousness is realizing that everything we have has been given to us. Everything we need has already been given to us. If you go through this whole life and you never own your home, never have a a decent car, never have anything worth bragging about or any fame or notoriety, but you have Jesus, is that enough? God never promises to give us what we want. He might. He does sometimes. But what he does promise is to give us what we need. And what we need is Jesus. Day by day, he gives us his son to be here with us through all of the heartache, through the struggle. And he promises that someday we will stand in his presence. The richest possession we have in this world is Jesus. Are we keeping him for ourselves? Are we giving away the riches of heaven? My friend Joe shared a a story with me, and I'll briefly say it. He told me about the greatest day of his life when he received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he was so excited, he went back to work to tell everyone about Jesus. And then that Sunday, he went into church, and that day in church was one of the worst days of his life. When he realized that the people in the church, he already knew in the community. He already knew at his work. And the whole time they saw him suffering through the pain that he was going through. And they were storing up this treasure. They weren't giving the treasure of Jesus to him. You may be sitting here today thinking, this message doesn't have a lot to do with me, right? My car is broken down. I live in a shabby one-bedroom apartment. I don't have anything worth giving. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have an abundance of grace that has been poured out on you. And that is something that you can give away in spades. Just giving it away unlimitedly. You can never run out of the grace that Jesus is giving to us. I pray that we can be generous with everything, especially God's grace. Let's pray.